are listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Happy New Year, everybody. It is episode 10, Ohio versus the Copperheads. And today we're going to be talking about Ohio during the Civil War. We're going to analyze the political history of the Civil War. Uh, too often these histories uh, of the war focus on you know Lincoln only or the battles only. And, and today we're going to study the rise of a major political movement, the Copperheads. And really they became a, a political party, a third party. Our guest today is Jennifer Weber, a professor of history at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and she's the author of Copperheads, The Rise and Fall of Lincoln's Opponents in the North. It's an Oxford University Press from 2006. We saw uh, Jennifer originally on C-SPAN. She was doing a a presentation. Uh, C-SPAN on the weekend, C-SPAN 2 and C-SPAN 3 have great history programs, lectures and shows uh, and interviews with authors. Every weekend we end up DVR in at least three, four, five different programs from C-SPAN on their weekends with their history shows. So that's where we saw Jennifer. We reached out to her, read her amazing book, Copperheads, and she was kind enough to join us. The idea, you know, that uh, in the North, everyone was behind the war effort is simply not true. And so we analyzed the, the Midwest Millions of Americans didn't support the war effort. There's rioting. There's electing, you know, anti-war candidates. Even a plot by Midwestern states to secede from the Union to create a third nation out of the original United States. And we'll look at the political career of the leading peace Democrats, they were called, or copperheads, by their opponents. And we'll, today we'll be talking about Dayton, Ohio's own Clement Vallandigham, a congressman and later a candidate for governor during the war. And few politicians would be more hated by their countrymen uh, than Vallandigham. He was the leading anti-Lincoln political figure um, and the leader of the Copperhead movement from 1861 to 1864. Uh, He also, though, would become a political martyr, expelled from the United States and the first man to run for governor from major party while exiled in another country. It's a crazy story. The Ohio gubernatorial election of 1863 with Clement Vallandigham, but we'll talk about it today with Jennifer Weber. We'll also discuss the impact of emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation, the country's volatile first military draft. We'll look at the uh, the famous New York City draft riots and also a draft riot here in the Buckeye State. And we'll also talk about Lincoln's re-election campaign and how he went from a guaranteed loser to a landslide winner in 1864 and how that re-election over the Democrats and over the Copperheads probably helped to save our country. That's our beer for the episode. We are at the Brew Kettle, uh, located, they've got multiple locations, but we were at the Strongsville location on Pearl Road, and today we're drinking, they actually have a beer called Copperhead Red. It's an amber red ale, 5% alcohol, and again, 
the folks at Brew Kettle, really good uh, barbecue they have up there as well. And they have locations, like we said, in Strongsville. Go to brew, thebrewkettle.com, Amherst, Ohio, Hudson. Uh, and I believe they're putting in a, a new one in Medina. So check out their beer when you're there, the Copperhead Red. And that's our beer for the episode, pretty obviously, today for Ohio versus the Copperheads. In today's episode, we'll be going to the home front. As, as Lincoln said, the home front was just as big a battle almost as, as the war in the field. He said in 8, January 1863 to Senator Sumner, he said, I'm more worried about the fire in the rear than the Confederates to my front. And today we'll talk about that fire in the rear, uh, the Copperhead movement that nearly voted President Lincoln out of office and nearly ended the Civil War. Uh, and had they done it on their terms, it would have ended with two countries. So today we'll be talking about Clement Vallandigham and the Copperhead movement. It's episode 10, Ohio vs. Copperheads. Before we get started today, you know we need to get a disclaimer out of the way. If you remember uh, Jennifer Weber, our guest, she's a history professor at the Air Force Academy uh, and the author of the great book Copperheads, The Rise and Fall of Lincoln's Opponents in the North. Uh, and like we said, we saw Jennifer when she was a teacher still at uh, Kansas University in Lawrence. Just before we start, anyone who from a military academy, Department of Defense, and she's going to be talking on our show, she's got a give this little disclaimer basically that her views on this subject are not the views of the Air Force Department of Defense etc. I'm a professor at the United States Air Force Academy. Everything that we discuss today is my opinion and not that of the Academy, the Air Force or the Defense, Defense Department. We start this podcast today and the war's already begun. You know, the original enlistment, you look at someone like uh, future President William McKinley as a teenager up in Niles, Ohio, in Youngstown, he decides to join the Union Army for a 90-day enlistment. And by the time he gets down to Columbus uh, to, to, you know, be enrolled and, and to go to training, things have changed. And they tell him, sorry, it's not 90 days, it's three years or nothing. There's a series of defeats at the beginning of the war that changes that enlistment. McKinley would still sign up, but imagine agreeing to a 90-day enlistment that suddenly has to be three years. There's a growing segment of the Congress and of the nation that turns against the war early. The, mount, the losses mount, and more importantly, you see the economy falling apart during the war. And more and more towns are losing their sons. A segment of the Democrats break away and form a group called the Peace Democrats. But everyone else calls them the Copperheads, and in southern Ohio... The southern parts of Indiana and Illinois we'll talk about today. They, these Copperheads, Peace Democrats, were known as Butternuts. We talked with Jennifer Weber, our guest. You know, where did those, those names come from? The terms came about because of a newspaper editorial in 1861. It really <clears throat> didn't get a lot of traction uh, for about a year. And what it referred to is the deadly snake is the the Republicans saw the Copperheads as a deadly snake in the grass. The Butternuts are really Midwesterners and people from the Upper South, and this comes from the Butternut tree, 
And people who identified as butternuts or copperheads, and in some communities those terms are interchangeable, would advertise themselves by turning a butternut into a pin, for instance, and wearing a man might wear that on his lapel. Or at the time, the penny was also known as a copper as a copperhead because it was made out of copper and on one side of it was not the image of Abraham Lincoln that we have now, Mm -hmm. but an image of Lady Liberty. And what the copperhead said was that they were really fighting to preserve American liberties. They thought that much of what the Republicans were up to was infringing on American liberties and the American Constitution. And so they would take a penny and with the Lady Liberty side out, turn that into a pin as well. Sometimes they called themselves copperheads. Sometimes they called themselves butternuts. More often they they called themselves um, either conservatives or peace Democrats. The subject for our episode today, Clement Vallandigham, the congressman is born in 1820. He's born in Columbiana County, just south of Youngstown, in a town called New Lisbon. It's now just called Lisbon. I don't know when they dropped the, the new from it, but uh, he's from Lisbon, Ohio, and he became a lawyer in Dayton, Ohio, and really became a lawyer thanks to a loan from future Secretary of War Edwin Stanton uh, of $500 to start his firm and to get his license. Um, which is funny because those two friends from the 1840s would become mortal enemies come the war when Stanton was Lincoln's Secretary of War. Uh, Last year we did a great episode, uh, Ohio versus Civil War, about Edwin Stanton. He was from the Steubenville area in in Ohio, in eastern Ohio. Uh, And go back and listen to that with author Walter Starr, one of my favorite episodes last year. Again, Ohio versus Civil War. But our subject was Clement Vallandigham. We talked briefly with Jennifer just about his political career as he moves his way from from Dayton, Ohio to Washington, D.C. as a congressman. Yeah, so he grew up in New Lisbon. He went to college in Pennsylvania, but didn't really finish. I think he had maybe a year, maybe two under his belt there and came came back to Ohio. He served one term in the state legislature from Columbiana County, but then he moved to Dayton. And that is the area that he represented and lived in for then the rest of his life. Um, He ran for Congress twice in 52 and 54, that would be 1852, sorry, uh, and 54 before winning in a, he, these two races were really close. He ran again in 56 and ended up winning in a recount. So that in itself is kind of a great sidebar story. Um, what happened to him, though, was that in 1860, he, he wound up being gerrymandered out of office. Right. So he was out of Congress in 18, 1862 because basically his district did not exist anymore. Our friend John Hay, who's Lincoln's private secretary and a Cleveland resident for many years, future secretary of state under McKinley and under Roosevelt, subject of uh, another episode of ours, Ohio versus the Gilded Age. Go back and listen to that. That's really one of my favorite, favorite episodes. And John Hay, one of the most interesting men to ever live. 
Uh, but Hay described Vallandigham as a man of, quote, a man of respectable talents who seldom makes a speech without attracting the entire attention of the house. Vallandigham was a charismatic speaker, but as Hay continued, no one respected his, his opinions, he said. You know, Clement Vallandigham was just an old-timey Lincoln hater. He also blamed Lincoln for his loss in 1862. Lincoln picked his opponent, General Robert Schneck, a very popular general from the Union Army when he was defeated. He blamed the Republicans who gerrymandered his district, and he also blamed Lincoln for, for getting Robert Schneck to run against him. And he spoke out against the president right away. And he believed that Lincoln was not a good president. He believed that he was blundering the war, and he believed that he was violating the fundamental rights of all Americans. We talked with our guest Jennifer Weber about, about Clement Vallandigham and just how quickly he turned on President Lincoln. Well, he wants a vote of censure against Lincoln. The first time that Congress meets after the Civil War is declared, which is about July 4th of 1861, um, the Congress, controlled by Republicans, tables his objections and never picks them up again. He objects to many things that the Republicans do to in in the name of fighting this war. So uh, habeas corpus is just one income tax law that Congress passes. Uh, he says it's unconstitutional. He says that the um, the Greenback Bill, which creates federally guaranteed paper money like what we have now, this is the first time that's happened. Um, it, it starts during the Civil War, and he says that's illegal. Uh, certainly, he has great objections to emancipation and conscription. Really, anything that you can think of that Lincoln is doing, Clement Blanningham is going to come up uh, with an objection to. And it sounds crazy, but sometimes I wonder, you know, would I have been a full-blown Lincoln supporter in the early years of the war. I know that sounds weird, but you know I would have been an abolitionist, but I'm also a lawyer. And the extrajudicial things that were being done uh, were simply not constitutional. And, and the crackdown on criticism by the Stanton-led War Department, the jailing of, of journalists who spoke out against the war, um, and then as you always hear, you know, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. Habeas corpus you know, is one of the main complaints of the colonists against the British crown, this idea that they could put you in jail without any charges and hold you for indefinitely months at a time these colonists would spend in jail for things like sedition and speaking out against the crown. And we all agree now that Lincoln was our greatest president, but if you put yourself there, when you see these bedrock protections of the last 75 years from the Constitution being you know, peeled away, it's alarming. And it was cited by copperheads like Vallandigham as proof positive that Lincoln was acting like a dictator. He called him King Abraham I. We talked with Jennifer about the suspension of habeas corpus that you always hear about and how it started even more dissension against, against President Lincoln and his administration. The, the first step on the suspension of habeas corpus is, you're right, it was between Philly and D.C. Um, and it wound up extending all the way up the East Coast and eventually through the entire North, thanks to an act of Congress. But the first couple of steps were Lincoln's because Congress wasn't in session then. 
What it meant for the average citizen was habeas corpus means that you can't be held indefinitely without being charged with crime. So what that meant in practical terms was that if somebody in power thought that you were up to something nefarious, they could arrest you and hold you indefinitely. And so that happened a bit. Um, Where you see it happening a lot is particularly with newspaper editors who are publishing things that Republicans or it's, it's less Lincoln personally than the then Secretary of War or the people who are right on the ground making these decisions. And so, yeah, it's not pretty. And by the time it extends all across the United States, what you have is martial law. Democratic Party. In the North, the Democratic Party basically became two parties, the War and Peace Democrats, the Copperheads and the original Democrats. We talked with Jennifer Weber, you know, about how there basically became a three-party system in the United States after 1861. The Democratic Party was kind of split into two wings. So it would be this conservative, very conservative wing uh, that the Republicans built the Copperheads. And the more the wing that was more willing to go along with Lincoln, or at least believed that the Union really needed to win this war, and they were the war Democrats. They tended to be more supportive of the war measures that Lincoln and the Republicans instituted. In 2006, during the Quagmire War in Iraq, President Bush and the Republicans, they were creamed at the polls during the midterms. During his second term, the war had really bogged down, and Bush does a press conference the next day. In his Texas draw, he says that it was a thumping. If you look at race by race, it was close. The cumulative effect, however, was not too close. It was a thumping. Well, in 1862, the midterms, that was also a thumping. That new third-party faction was still operating within the Democratic Party, and the Peace Democrats and Democrats in general cleaned up in 1862. In the midterms in the fall, people's frustrations with the war, with the frustration with Lincoln and his draconian uh, you know, wartime policies, and the Copperhead promise of peace with the South, they picked up seats and really cleaned up when it comes to state government and governorships, You know, never fully explaining how they were going to accomplish that peace with the South. But still, we talked with Jennifer just about the midterm elections of 1862 and how it changed the political landscape for the president. The Republicans lose about 15% of the seats that they have in Congress, but they manage to maintain a plurality of votes in Congress and effectively a majority when you talk about their allies in Congress who are not out-and-out Republicans. They have more trouble at the state level. So, for instance, in Lincoln's own state, Illinois, the Democrats take control of the state legislature. And that has real consequences for 
how the state is going to be run, how cooperative it might be with the Republican war effort. What is good for Lincoln in Illinois is that the, uh, the governor is still a Republican. That is also true in Indiana. But in Indiana, it's the Copperheads who take control of the legislature there. And their agenda is to take all the Indiana troops out of the Civil War. And what happens there is that the governor refuses to convene the legislature for the next two years. And so banks and to some extent the federal government help bankroll the state government of Indiana for those two years because, of course, no budget is passed. I mean, absolutely nothing happens during that time. In um, New York, there is a fairly conservative governor who is elected, who gives Lincoln some difficulties and comes to some notoriety during the uh, New York draft riots the following summer. Is that Seymour? That's Seymour, yeah. And the new governor of New Jersey is just a flat-out copperhead. Jennifer Weber does a great job in her book, Copperheads. Uh, There's a link to purchase it. Again, I implore you to buy this book. Uh, Link in the show notes. But she does an amazing job of sharing soldiers' letters from the front. They're used throughout the book, and they help show a shift in the political views from indifference to becoming really very pro-Lincoln denouncing people from back home and imploring family members to support the war effort. The War Department and Secretary of War Stanton would also take notice. And, and, you know, suddenly they would shift their efforts in 63 and in 1864 to get out the soldier vote because the soldier vote would become very pro-Lincoln. They didn't want their courageous efforts, you know, to be in vain. They wanted to win the war. We'll also hear, you know, we talked earlier about our Stanton episode with author Walter Starr. Also hear from that episode, as uh, author Walter Starr talks about, you know, how Stanton evolved during the, the War Department to get out that soldier vote. The election of 1862 ends up being a major wake-up call to the troops in the Union Army who haven't really been paying attention to what's going on on the home front politically to this point or they haven't been paying very close attention. They haven't seen, in most parts of the country, the Copperhead movement is something really very serious. And the Copperhead's success in 1862 really wakes up the soldiers. And they become uh, where they may have favored, say, McClellan, earlier in the war, in the first year or so of the war, they really come to rally behind Lincoln after that election. I mean, 62 is the first year in which he is Secretary of War, and he really doesn't focus much on politics that fall. Um, and, And gaboom, when the election returns come in, it's a real rebuke for Lincoln and Stanton and others, um, a bunch of prominent anti-war Democrats are elected in the fall of 62. And I think Stanton learns a lesson because even in the spring of 63 in some state elections in New England, he's focused. Um, And he continues to focus through 
really through his whole time um, as Secretary of War. Um, one aspect of that is getting soldiers to vote. You know, some states allowed people to vote in the field. And so then the exercise was getting the voting materials, the ballots, the, the vote counters to the soldiers, and other states did not. And then the exercise was getting soldiers home. Um, and Democrats charged with considerable justification that Stanton was selective about the regiments that were sent home to vote. I mean, obviously, he didn't have the ability to ask each individual soldier, how are you going to vote? But he could look at the, he, he, he did have ways of knowing kind of the political views of the regimental leaders. And if a regiment was led by a prominent Democrat, well, it probably was going to stay in the trenches right where it was. And if a regiment was led by a, you know, a, a vocal Republican, lo and behold, here are free passes home to Ohio or New Hampshire or wherever it was uh, so that that regiment could vote. As much as, you know, you might think I can relate to some of these Copperhead concerns about the unconstitutional measures being taken by Lincoln and the War Department, it also ignores a major concern of Vallandigham I have about, you know, Vallandigham and the Copperheads. And that's the simple fact that they were racist. Even by the standards of the time, according to our guests, they were arguing this is not a war for union, it's a war to end slavery. And they believe in states' rights and that there's nothing wrong with slavery uh, continuing in those states where, where, it was, where it was going on before the war. And Lincoln himself is even slow to come around to the importance of taking this full step to you know, full emancipation. He was not a progressive abolitionist when he takes office. He believed slavery must end, but he experimented with ideas about colonization, the resettlement of slaves to Liberia and West Africa, and with ideas of gradual emancipation. But we talk with uh, our guest, Jennifer Weber, about you know, just how racist were the Copperheads and men like Clement Vallandigham. The rhetoric that you get from the Copperheads on race is hair curling. That it's, it's terrible. It's terrible to read now. And again, even by the standards of their own times, they're pretty extreme on this particular instance. They have zero sympathy for the slaves. They don't have any problem with slavery itself. So, uh, and they have been saying for a year and a half that this war is really about slavery, that it was started by the abolitionists, and that the real agenda behind the war is to end slavery. Lincoln has been saying that's not true, that our primary objective is to restore the Union. But what happens is that Lincoln comes to realize that he can't restore the Union with kid gloves on. That's not going to work. He tries. It's not going to work. He talks, uh, he has a number of meetings with these delegates from the border states, and especially Kentucky, trying to work out some solution to this. It goes absolutely nowhere. He finally re realizes he's wasting his time on this. Following the Union victory at Antietam, you know, I use victory in quotation marks, um, in September 17, 1862, was the bloodiest day in American history. 22,000 casualties, all Americans, North and South. Uh, and just five days later, after he finally gets 
what's perceived to be a victory, he announces the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all the slaves in America, including the South, uh, on January 1st of 1863. Now, only about 50, maybe 75,000 slaves were freed on, on New Year's Day, 1863, when it went into effect, because, you know, we could only free those that are in Confederate territory that the Union Army held. There's some still a major step. Abolitionists were thrilled, but the Copperheads were angry. Another un- unconstitutional overreach by King Abraham. And more importantly, it proves that this was the real reason for the war. This was a war to free blacks. We were lied to. Our sons are fighting and dying for African Americans that they don't really care about. We talked to Jenny about the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation on the war effort, not just in the homeland, but also in foreign policy. You know, when you're talking about the South trying to to cozy up to anti-slavery superpowers like France and Great Britain. Emancipating the slaves is actually a fantastic war measure because it gets at the soft underbelly of the Confederacy. Over 80% of Southern men of military age are in the army, which is extraordinary. That just doesn't happen. But it's the white men. And the reason that they can mobilize that percentage of their population is because they have a workforce of 4 million black slaves. If you start removing those slaves from the equation, you're striking at the labor force of the Confederacy, which is going to make it all the more difficult for them to keep going. They add up to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property. So the financial losses that the slave owners are going to sustain is significant. And then there's the morale blow that this is going to strike uh, against the Confederacy. And something like half a million slaves do run away. This also introduces a moral dimension to the war, and it winds up keeping France and England from getting involved in any way. And they had been very close to recognizing the Confederacy uh, right around the time, in fact, that Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And the Confederates keep thinking that maybe it's possible, maybe, 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 I mean, right up to the end of the war, that maybe they can persuade Great Britain to recognize them. But after September of 1862, that's gone. But as far as the as far as the copperheads are concerned, it's a great vindication because it proves to them that they've been right all this time. Not all of Lincoln's uh, you know his administration's big policies were well received even in the pro-Union parts of the North. The Enrollment Act, we have to talk about the draft. The first ever military draft in America, this is a huge deal. This really sparked you know, the rebellion, that fire in the rear that Lincoln discussed at the beginning of 1863. It becomes like a five-alarm fire. Is there a bigger power that a federal government can yield? You have to go, and you have to fight, and you have to die against your will because we said so. 
This is the type of power that, that Americans at the time had rebelled against. The average American you know, was completely up for grabs politically at this point. And the Copperheads swoop into the void you know, with their peace at any cost message and an immediate halt to federal power reaching into their homes and lives of every American. That could be an appealing message. The federal government before the war, that was not something you would encounter in your daily life. Rarely ever. Um, it, the federal government really would grow by leaps and bounds following the war. You know, but now they're sending agents into your town to draft your sons, to draft you. We talked to Jenny about the dreaded Enrollment Act of 1863. So the Enrollment Act uh, was passed in March of 1863, and uh, the first part of it was to require men to enroll for the draft, not unlike what you see today. Although what happened then is it was kind of its own special census that uh, agents would go around and knock on doors and get a bunch of personal information, including what you looked like. And um, they would write that down so that if you were drafted and didn't show up, or if you went into the army and deserted, they now had a physical description of you. If we don't have enough people, we are going to start drafting. And that did end up happening in some states. What The way it happened was a state got a quota of men it needed to provide for the army. From that was sub subtracted the number of volunteers it had sent already. And so they got this number saying, you need to give us this many men. The real idea behind the Enrollment Act was to spur voluntary enlistments, but obviously that didn't happen. And anybody who was alive during the Vietnam War probably remembers how popular the draft was and feelings about it, and it was not dissimilar during the Civil War. So this was an act of the government that they can take young men and force them into life-threatening situations entirely against their will. I think it may be the greatest power that any federal government has. And that got a lot of people who were on the fence or didn't have strong opinions otherwise, that tended to push a lot of people into the Copperhead column because they did not want to serve and they deeply resented the government doing this because this was something that Americans had never seen before this kind of power this dissension continues to grow on the home front in the Midwest and in Ohio this fire in the rear is growing into an inferno men like Villandingham you know, they're not just talking, but they're acting on plots to maybe even create a third country in the Midwest. These men with people like from, there's some conspirators from the Knights of the Golden Circle, they were called. Until the landing it wasn't just north and south, it was north, south, and west. Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, they were the west. And Vallandigham and his conspirators, they began acting on their planned coups and even a possible succession to create a third country out of the United States. So that had traction, and that was real. Lincoln was so worried about it 
that he confided to a senator in January of 1863 that he was more worried about what he called, as you said, the fire in the rear than he was about the Confederates in front of him. Um, I don't know what Vallandigham's position on this was, but uh, Vallandigham did take money from Confederate agents. Well, it somebody took money for him um, from Confederate agents. He did not personally touch the money, but he uh, then parceled that out to um, various allies who went and bought guns to help overthrow the state governments in the states that had used, had begun as parts of the Northwest uh, Territory, the old Northwest Territory. The Landingham, in my view, was probably involved then in genuine plots against the United States and the various state governments. I think that most Copperheads were probably loyal Americans who had real and legitimate concerns about the constitutionality of what their government was doing. Republicans talked about them as all being traitors. I don't think most of them met that definition, but I do think that Clement Vallandigham did. And as we talked about, the draft is incredibly, incredibly unpopular. And in New York City in the summer of 1863, the people of New York rise up and begin rioting as the draft begins there. They're destroying draft board offices, government offices, moving to the homes of the rich. You know, and it really degenerates into a race riot, a white-on-black race riot in the city. It is one of the worst disturbances in American history. This was in direct response to the draft. It takes place within two weeks of the Union victory at Gettysburg. News traveled slowly back then, but it still wouldn't have quelled the New Yorkers. They protested the government that the rich could, who could hire a substitute for $300, which is a very large sum at the time, you know, rich man's war, poor man's fight, that's what they would yell. And I implore you to watch you know, Martin Scorsese's film, The Gangs of New York. What an incredible movie, Daniel Day-Lewis, Leonardo DiCaprio. The final 30 minutes of the movie takes place during the draft riots in July 1863 in New York City. And it really gives you a, a great feel for the uprising. We talk with our guest Jennifer Weber about the New York City draft riots. It's bad. The The draft riots in New York City take uh, the better part of a week. They start about 10 days after the Battle of Gettysburg. They are a huge problem. They really start as uh, opposition to the draft mostly by, but not entirely by Irish poor Irish immigrants, but it very rapidly, like within a couple of days, turns into a race riot. And what happens is that innocent black people are hanged from lampposts. The Colored Orphans Asylum was torched to the ground. I don't believe any of those children died in that, but uh, they're, they're taking torches to federal government offices. The people died in the New York City draft riot is about 120 or so, but there are some historians who say it's over a thousand. And we don't really know because 
particularly when you're talking about black people, nobody were nobody was really counting that very closely at the time. It remains the largest civil disturbance in American history. But it wasn't just New York. In the North, many other cities were, were rioting against the Enrollment Act as well. We asked Jennifer about some of those other draft riots that take place across the country in 1863. But it wasn't, it wasn't alone. There was a draft riot that broke out in Boston, another one in Troy, New York. Newark was on alert about this. And then you had much more localized uh, violence. The agents of the Douglas Marshall General's Bureau collecting information or trying to enforce the draft. I think overall, something over 60 agents were assassinated, for lack of a better term, trying to enforce the draft law between 1863 and 1865. There were these agents as part of the Enrollment Act. Talk about a tough job being a draft agent during 1863. And in uh, Jennifer's book, Copperheads, we learn about a riot that takes place in Holmes County, Ohio just south of Worcester, where I went to school, the College of Worcester in, in Northeast Ohio, a county that's you know now known for being one of the main Amish capitals in the country. But a, a mob in 1863, I guess this would have been in June, about a month before the New York draft riots, a mob attacks an officer sent to enlist the men in the county. Um, you know, A provost marshal captured the ringleaders responsible for the assault, and a group of residents then went and freed those four men who were arrested. For, for roughing up the uh, the enrollment agent. 900 residents then build this makeshift fort. It's called Fort Fizzle is what they would end up calling it, to resist future attempts to arrest the ringleaders uh, and also to prevent you know just the draft's enforcement. They equipped themselves with guns, and some sources said they had like up to four artillery pieces. Um, it's kind of unlikely there are actually any cannons in the fort, uh, but approximately 420 federal soldiers come up from Columbus, and they arrive to disarm the men and to implement the draft. There's a brief skirmish that occurs with the the soldiers emerging victorious. Uh, Two of the draft resistors were wounded. No other casualties in the the battle at Fort Fizzle. But the demonstrators dispersed into the woods, and the battle for Fort Fizzle, uh, as it became known, quickly ended. It fizzled, you know, hence the name that, that the media came up with it. But eventually a deal's brokered in which four men originally arrested those four ringleaders who attacked the original enrollment agent, they would surrender. When the men turned themselves in, a majority of the soldiers then dispersed and returned to Columbus. But this was a full-blown insurrection in small-town Ohio. This is what was happening in the homeland. This is what it was like on the ground. You think our, our country's divided now. 900 small-town Ohioans in Holmes County just south of Worcester you know, are building forts and fighting four and 500 U.S. troops. I mean, it's bad. I mean, you know, we only learned about this again from Jennifer's book, but I implore you to uh, to click that link in the show notes and buy her book. We asked her briefly just about Fort Fizzle. Yeah, which is just a great name for it. But yeah, that was a pretty significant uprising, and that took place actually about a month before the New York draft riots and involved... Um, something like 900 armed men. They had to send in about 450 soldiers to try to break it up. It 
sounds like just a total mess, but Fort Fizzle is such a great name for it. General Ambrose Burnside, the general of the Department of Ohio, stationed in Cincinnati. Not his first appearance on the show. Go back to Ohio vs. Confederacy, our first season when we did about Morgan's raid. Uh, there was a group of Confederates under John Hunt Morgan that had a month-long raid of the southern half of the United, of the state, also in the summer of 1863. And we talk about Burnside trying to catch up and fight them. A battle was even fought. The only major battle fought on Ohio soil at Bufflington Island. It's an interesting episode from our first season. Go check it out. And it was a pretty interesting summer in Ohio in 1863 for Burnside uh, and for Vallandigham as well. We asked Jenny to describe how General Burnside went from commanding the mighty Army of the Potomac to the basically retired commander on the home front. A guy named Ambrose Burnside. And after Lincoln fires uh, McClellan in the fall of 1862, he brings in Ambrose Burnside uh, to take charge of the Army of the Potomac. Now, Burnside, I would say, um, has already exhibited some dubious leadership qualities and decision-making at the Battle of Antietam. Um, Look up Burnside's Bridge if you want to know more about that. But he and, and he tells Lincoln he does not think that he should become the head of the entire Army of the Potomac. That he really doesn't think he's up to the job. What I will say about Ambrose Burnside is he is a man who knew himself well. He is the commander on the field. Well, he's the commander in charge of the Army of the Potomac at the Battle of Fredericksburg, which is a huge disaster in December of 62 for the Union. And about three weeks later, he tries to send his army around it uh, to, to get Lee from behind. Within a couple days, it starts raining really hard. They get bogged down in the mud. And this comes to be known as the Mud March, and it's a complete fiasco. And so Lincoln replaces Burnside after that. This is also really the low point of morale for the um, Army of the Potomac. So what do you do now with this general, right, who, who's proven himself to be kind of a failure? Well, you know, you retire them um, to pasture or you promote them to pasture. And so Lincoln sends him off to be the head of the Department of the Ohio Subject of our show, Clement Vallandigham, he's voted out of Congress, you know, like we said, thanks to the gerrymandering efforts of, of other congressmen and with a little help from Lincoln. And he's taken this growing Copperhead movement on the road, and he's an electrifying speaker. On May 1st, he's in Mount Vernon, Ohio, Knox County. Uh, the saga of Vallandigham becomes kind of the biggest story on the home front that summer. He's aware that there's Union soldiers in, in civilian clothes in the audience, he sees them taking notes, and Vallandigham gives an inflammatory speech. He's excoriating the Lincoln administration for carrying out what he said was, quote, a war for the freedom of the blacks and the enslavement of the whites. Vallandigham would give speeches like this all over the state that summer. 
But in 1863, in May, after he gave the speech in Mount Vernon, he's promptly arrested. Burnside gets frustrated with the Copperheads in Ohio, and he's particularly annoyed by Clement Vallandigham. And so he writes up and issues something that becomes known as General Orders Number 38. And what this says is that, and I'm going to quote this here, treason expressed or implied will not be tolerated in this department. And that what will happen if you somehow speak out against the government and it can be interpreted as treason, which can be anything, um, you will be uh, taken in and you will be tried by a military court. And if you are found guilty, you will be sentenced to spend the rest of the war in a military prison. Vallandigham knows this, and Vallandigham is a bit of a showman, has kind of a high opinion of himself, and he sees this, rightly so, as an opportunity to be a political martyr. So he continues to go out and criticize Lincoln and the draft and various other things that the Lincoln administration has done to try to prosecute this war. One of the speeches that he gives is this speech in Mount Vernon. He's very deliberate in what he's doing. Burnside has two uniformed agents in the audience. The Landingham knows they're there. He can see them taking notes in their little notebooks. And they go back and they report to Burnside what has happened. Burnside decides that's it. We're arresting the Landingham and they show up at his house in Dayton at about two o'clock in the morning. They give him just enough time to uh, get dressed and then they bundle him off to Cincinnati. Uh, he goes before a military tribunal. He's found guilty of treason and he's ordered to spend the rest of the war in a military prison. Lincoln finds out about all this you know, happening and everyone is up in arms, both parties really all three parties, a political opponent, a former congressman is arrested for his free speech. And so Lincoln comes up with a real Lincolnian solution. One of the Civil War's most unusual surrenders takes place on May 25th of 1863. Now remember, we said he gave the speech on May 1st. He's arrested on like May 5th. And by May 25th, just three weeks after he made that speech, uh, he's already been found guilty. And he's taken by two Union officers, and they approach a Confederate soldier on picket duty outside Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And Vallandigham reciting this short speech, he says, and I quote, I'm a citizen of Ohio and of the United States. I am here within your lines by force and against my will. I therefore surrender myself to you as a prisoner of war. We talked with Jennifer about how Clement Vallandigham, who just months ago was a United States congressman, now ends up as a guest, an unwanted guest, of the Confederacy. So Lincoln finds out about this, like everybody else in the country, which is to say by reading the paper. Burnside had not checked with anybody before uh, issuing his general orders, number 38. He hadn't talked to Lincoln. He hadn't talked to Stanton. He did this entirely on his own authority. So now Lincoln has a real problem. 
He can't appear to undercut his general in any way. But even Republicans are saying that this is a violation of the Landingham's First Amendment rights. And that is obvious to Lincoln as well. So Lincoln strikes upon a great Lincolnian solution, which is both practical and funny. And he decides that, okay, Mr. Blandingham, if you admire the Confederates so much, why don't you go there? They bundle him up again. They take him down to Kentucky. Late at night, uh, they take him toward the lines, the picket lines, uh, with the Union and Confederate outposts kind of give him a shove toward the Confederate pickets and say, go be with the Confederates, have a nice life. Jennifer's book tells the story of Clement Vallandigham in in the Confederate States of America. And it's it's a good read. He goes down to Richmond and and other things. But basically, and we talked to Jennifer, it didn't work out. We asked her, what happened when Clement Vallandigham became a Confederate? Eventually, um, he lands in Richmond, and he realizes he doesn't like the Confederates. The Confederates realize they don't like him. He's not paying any attention to what they're saying, which is they have no interest in ending the war unless they gain their independence. Um, This is one thing that's really remarkable about the Copperheads, is they never, never, never acknowledge what the Confederate war aims are. They think that somehow if you call a ceasefire, that the Confederates will magically return to the Union. It's not what the Confederates want. They want their independence. And they've been telling Blandingham this for a month now, and he's not listening to them. And so everybody decides that it would be a good idea for them to part ways. So Landingham gets on a ship that manages to run the blockade. He goes down to the Caribbean, maybe I think the West Indies, catches another ship up to Canada and winds up in Windsor, Ontario, which is right across the Detroit River from Detroit. And that is where he resurfaces. still busy even though he's in Windsor Ontario uh, he's becomes a celebrity and a politically viable candidate according to Ohio Democrats and Jennifer tells a story about how Clement Vallandigham runs for Ohio's governorship from a foreign country I can promise you that is a first a man running for uh, the governorship of Ohio uh, from while he's in exile in a major party candidate nonetheless we talked to her about the governor's race in Ohio in 1863. He starts meeting with all these Confederate agents, with all these other copperheads who are coming up to visit him and talk to him. This is all closely observed by the Provost Marshal General's Bureau in uh, Detroit, which is reporting back to Washington regularly about what he's doing. And in the middle of the Detroit River, there's also a Union gunboat, 
with its guns trained directly on the Landingham's front parlor. And it just stays there for the entire length of his stay. So the Landingham was not wrong that he would come to be considered a political martyr. This is definitely how the Democrats regard him. And they nominate him, the Ohio Democrats nominate him to become their candidate for the governor of Ohio in 1863. So he winds up running for governor. From, from another Cam country. Right, from Windsor, Ontario. Especially they're counting on the soldier boats. They don't realize, and again, this is a bit of a mystery to me, how they could have misread this so badly, but they think that the soldiers are completely behind them because they're promising to bring an end to hostilities and the soldiers are not with them at all. And in fact, of all the soldier ballots cast in the fall of 1863, only 5% of them go for Volandingham. 95% oh. go for his Republican opponent who wins in a landslide. In the spring of 1864, there's hope. Grant is now the head of the army Armies are moving in the South trying to end the war. There's a real chance, a feeling, that we can get this war wrapped up, and Lincoln desperately wants the war concluded. But the only way is to fight and to die in large numbers to force the smaller Confederate armies to be bled out on the field. And it's believed that they'll finally be able to force them back into the Union by the end of that summer. But all that hope and promise turns into a bloodbath, a quagmire summer, the darkest point maybe in our country's existence. Battles like the Wilderness, Cold Mountain. Grant the Butcher becomes his name. Even Lincoln's wife Mary calls General Grant a butcher. The summer of 64 does not go well. Thousands and thousands of Union soldiers die, and there's really no seeming progress. We asked Jennifer Weber about how the summer of 64 went so wrong. Part of the problem in 64, particularly in the summer, is how high the expectations were coming into the battle season. What happened there is that Grant became the commander of all the armies in March of 64. And a lot of people in the North interpreted this as, well, this is pretty much the end of the war right here, that he's going to be wildly successful, the same as he was in the West, and that the war is going to end really soon. And that isn't what happens. So the three main armies that are moving are Banks, who uh, tries to move up the Red River from New Orleans uh, in the spring. He's turned around just outside of Shreveport, goes back to New Orleans, and is sitting on his hands there all summer. Nothing. The next army that's moving is uh, Sherman's, and they're going to go down and take Atlanta, but they go down in the late spring and get stuck in a siege of Atlanta. And so they don't look like they're doing a whole lot either, at least as far as the Northern public is concerned. Grant, by this time, I'm, I'm talking now about the Army of the Potomac because he, although Meade is the head of the yeah. Army of the Potomac, for all intents and purposes, Grant is also running that army. He takes 
on the order of 60 to 65,000 casualties in about five weeks in the Overland campaign. And by casualties, I don't mean killed. I mean killed, wounded, captured, missing. The Northern public just cannot take this, and they turn against him, and they turn against Lincoln. Their hopes are dashed. What does Grant have to show for this? A lot of people at the time think nothing at all because he too winds up in a siege um, outside of Petersburg. And so he's stuck, Sherman is stuck, Banks isn't doing anything, and it looks terrible to Northerners who now start to blame Lincoln. Even Lincoln's most ardent supporters are quiet at this point. His popularity reaches its bottom. His chances for re-election are very low. In her book, Copperheads, Jennifer provides what I think is really the best analysis I've read about Lincoln's decision to seek immediate peace from the Confederates. He's there. He's right there about to reach out to Jefferson Davis. And it's a very decent chance that the world would have been different today. He sleeps on it. You know, Instead of sending an emissary down to Richmond to seek peace, it certainly would have involved you know, removing the Emancipation Proclamation, certainly would have involved the continuation of slavery in the southern states. But Jenny calls it one of his great moments when he reneges on that. Even though he's going to lose, Lincoln decides he just can't do it. The idea is that this would smoke out Jefferson Davis and maybe convince the northern public that he is the bad guy here, that he is the problem, that it is his stubbornness and not Lincoln's that is the problem. Lincoln goes against the advice of the chairman of the Democrat or the Republican Party, who has come to him suggesting this and telling him that you're going to lose and you're going to lose big. And this is at the end of August. Um, Just a few months out. Right. A little over two. And says that if you're lucky you'll be able to to carry three states, one of which is your own, if you're lucky. So Lincoln does really think about sending somebody down to Richmond to do this, but, and, and he even writes a pass and a note for this person to take with him. And he just decides, he sleeps on it and gets up the next day and just, he says, God will damn me for time and eternity. If I do this, and you, if call, you I, call it one of his great moments, right? Oh, I think it's absolutely his great moment because at the end of August of 1864, everybody thinks he's going to lose, including him. Right after he makes this decision that he cannot turn his back, he cannot break his promises to the slaves or the freedmen that he's made this promise of freedom to. Um, he sits down and he writes a memo to his cabinet that starts planning for the um, move to the next administration, which he thinks is going to be a democratic administration. He writes out this memo, starting to make those plans. He puts it in an envelope. He seals it. He takes it to the cabinet meeting and he asks all his cabinet members to sign it, promising 
that they will go along with the contents of the memo inside, even though they have no idea what that is. And he says, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell you later. And so they all sign it. The Democrats nominate General George McClellan, the popular former head of the Union Army uh, from the state of New Jersey. But the Copperheads are a major part of this convention in Chicago. Lanningham is there, and he heads the platform committee, which will spell out to the country exactly what the Democrats believe. And this platform declares that the war is a failure. They promise to sue for peace from our southern brothers. Uh, the peace Democrats are really in control of a large part of this convention. They've reached you know, the peak of their powers, so much so that even in another Ohio Copperhead Congressman George Pendleton of Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, has been named as McClellan's, as McClellan's vice president. They've reached their peak. We talked to Jennifer about the 1864 Democratic Convention and how the Copperheads would actually be the Democrats and McClellan's undoing. The Democrats go into their national convention, which is in Chicago that year, and they're absolutely sure that they've got this thing sewn up. Uh, Volandingham is snuck back into the country in June. Lincoln knows this. He's made a decision that he is just not going to bother with it unless Volandingham gets really out of hand or incites some sort of violent episode. He's just going to leave him alone, which is wise. That is a wise decision. Uh, but Volandingham is instrumental on the platform committee. And this is at a time when people actually read political platforms and calls for an immediate cessation of hostilities. This goes before the entire convention. I think four people vote against it. It has broad support. The Democrats are very excited. Um, they have George McClellan, who is a war Democrat, as their nominee. They've got George Pendleton, another Ohioan, by the way, right. um, who's a member of Congress. He is the vice presidential candidate, and he's a copperhead and pretty close associate of the Landinghams. Landingham can't go on the ballot because he's poison. But by this time, the, the copperheads have so much power. The Landingham being on the platform committee is one stop that they throw to the copperheads, and another is having George Pendleton as the vice presidential candidate. They all leave Chicago the last day of August feeling fantastic about their chances. It seems like they have this thing completely in the bag. General William Tecumseh Sherman of Lancaster, Ohio, comes to the rescue. As you listen to a couple episodes, but really another one you should listen to, go back and listen to our Ohio versus the South episode from season two, get the full story on, on, General, on General Sherman. But everything changes in early September when Sherman takes Atlanta. This is huge. And it suddenly seems to Northerners that maybe Lincoln and Grant's total war strategy is working. And maybe, just maybe, we can still win this war. We talked to Jennifer Weber about just how important Sherman's taking of Atlanta was and how it really, many historians believe, changed the future of this country. On the night of September 1st and 2nd, the Confederates give up Atlanta and slip out. And Sherman takes control of the city. And it's 
this extraordinary moment in American political history. I'm not sure there are many moments that have this kind of drama or this kind of really profound impact so quickly. But it really is amazing. As news gets out across the country that Sherman has taken Atlanta, public opinion does a 180. You know, the summer had been terrible. Um, morale was awful among civilians, not among the soldiers, but among the civilians of the North. Um, many, many, many of them had lost faith. The soldiers had not. Suddenly, all these people who had lost all the confidence in the Union war effort are convinced that not only is this a major turn in the war effort, but that in fact, the Union has all but won the Civil War, and that all that's left is a mop-up operation. And as it happens, they are right. It would turn out in October and November, Lincoln would end up just absolutely destroying McClellan at the polls. The Democrats' entire argument is that the war was a failure and it needs to end. But the country's feeling differently about the war now. They think this thing might be, be winnable, and this platform that Vallandigham wrote was just a millstone around McClellan's neck on the campaign trail. He didn't necessarily believe in the platform assuming for peace. Technically, he would have been what was known as a war Democrat. But Lincoln and the soldier vote and the soldier's family vote kicks in. Had Lincoln lost the, you know, in 1864, the entire world as we know it would have been different. Had the Copperheads pulled this general election off, how long would slavery have continued? Would we have two countries instead of the United States now? It's an interesting what if, you know, what if Lincoln had lost um, and what it would have looked like had Lincoln lost the election. But he got 55% of the vote. We talk with our guest Jennifer Weber about the victory for Lincoln in the 1864 presidential election. The problem for the Democrats is they've got this platform that calls the war a failure. McClellan tries to backpedal out of that. There's nothing he can do that can convince people of the North that this is not um, something approaching a treasonous document. Lincoln does go on to win by a considerable margin. And as far as the electoral vote goes, the only state that uh, McClellan carries is his home state of New Jersey. Clement Vallandigham goes back to his law practice in Dayton following the war. He runs for Congress twice, I think once for the House and once in the Senate. But he's just no longer a force in politics. And he dies in 1871 in Lebanon, Ohio, while working on a case. A very peculiar death. We talk with Jennifer Weber to just explain the odd death of Clement Vallandigham in Lebanon, Ohio. Yeah, so he comes to a really weird end. He goes into private practice. Uh, you know, he never he never got back into Congress. He goes into private legal practice, and um, 1871, he's at the Golden Lamb in Lebanon, Ohio. So this is sort of weird for me because my mom grew up in Dayton. My love to go there, 
And this was well before I knew who the Landingham was. I had been going to the Golden Lamb already. But he was staying there, was across the um, square from the county courthouse, and he was trying a case there, and uh, it was a murder case. And his client claimed to be not guilty. It was There was some sort of a, an argument over a gun. They had been tussling over the gun, and uh, the man had, the other man, the victim, had ended up ended up inadvertently shooting himself through the abdomen. And I believe the gun was in a po- in the, the other man's pockets. And so Vlandingham is rehearsing for this trial and the argument that he is going to make the next day. And he's testing to see if, in fact, you can have a gun in your pocket and that it fires and would actually, like, shoot yourself that way. But as he's rehearsing this, he actually accidentally fires the gun and shoots himself through the gut and dies a pretty bad lingering. It takes him 24 hours to die. Mm -hmm. And being gut shot is a very bad thing um, in this time. And it's involved a lot of suffering. And uh, I think it, they have uh, framed at the Golden Lamb a telegram that he sent his family saying, you know, this has happened, I'm dying, I will be dead, you know, within a matter of hours, I love you all. There's something to that effect, uh, which is really very touching. But it's a, it's a completely bizarre ending to his life. As we close here, the Republicans would rule politics for the next 47 years after the war. Only two Grover Cleveland non-consecutive terms in the 1880s and early 1890s would break up decades of Republican rule. Really, of Ohio Republican rule. We'll discuss that in much greater detail during our President series starting this May um, next year and twenty or this year, 2020. Clement Vallandigham and others developed what's called the New Departure Strategy for Democrats, where they basically just never discuss the war and move on to their new policies. Uh, the new departure. But we talk in conclusion uh, to Jenny Weber just about what becomes of these dozens and dozens of Copperhead congressmen and what was their impact, their loss in 1864 and their loss in elections all over the country. What was their impact on the Democratic Party for decades to follow? What happens to them is it's not that they're entirely out of politics forever. But uh, they get very quiet for a really long time. They just don't really want to talk about their what they did during the Civil War. It ends up hanging around the, the Democrats' necks for the next two generations. Our book recommendation is Copperheads, The Rise and Fall of Lincoln's Opponents in the North by our guest Jennifer Weber, Oxford University Press, 2006. Such a good book uh, on, a, on a topic we've always been very interested, the political history and home front history uh, here in Ohio and in the Midwest. Great excerpts in that book from the soldiers' letters and correspondence from all kinds of leaders at the time. You know, she clearly did her research, and we talk about 
those first person accounts that are throughout the book they really give you a feel like you're you're on the home front you're on the battlefront in the north during the war we talked with jennifer um just about how she got so many great sources for this book so i visited archives all over the country and i'm not sure i think 15 or 20 archives by the time I was done with this, including the Ohio Historical Society, which I'd like to give a little shout out because it is an absolutely fantastic institution. And uh, it is a treasure trove. It was a godsend for me. I found some fantastic collections there and the archivists were wonderful and I could just go on forever about my wonderful experience there. These were all sitting in archives all over the country and you don't have to look very far to find them. You you look in um, collections of family letters. They're there. Uh, you can find a lot in letters to the governor. Um, those are also good sources to be looking at. Yeah. But the soldiers just absolutely hated the Copperheads. They blamed the Copperheads uh, for making the war go on longer than it needed to. Honestly, there may be something to that because what was going on at home, the interference with the Union efforts to raise troops. Maybe it did make the war last longer. That'll do it, guys. Thanks again to Jennifer Weber for joining us. We've got two episodes left here in Season 4. Uh, thanks so much to so many people who have been reaching out to me saying this is our best season ever. I, I have to agree. I've really enjoyed uh, the guests have been great this year, uh, starting with John Dean in our Watergate episode all the way through uh, Jennifer Weber's uh, appearance today. She was fantastic. And I appreciate her joining us from her home in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. Uh, we ask you guys to, again, to rate and review the show. We've uh, been getting more and more reviews. And like I said, it really helps shoot us up the rankings. So we greatly appreciate that. Um, we wanted to read just a couple of different reviews that we've gotten. But we got one here from our friend, actually from Katherine Harrison. Uh, she had us out this summer to uh to her harrison farm uh and she wrote you know ohio be the world's fantastic podcast alex does an amazing job of making stories of ohio's history relatable to modern listeners it's obvious that he cares about our state's history and applies himself studiously to preparing each episode treats his guests with great respect uh, also impressed with how engaged the guests are during their interviews reinforcing how uh welcome and appreciated alex makes them feel I've listened to all the seasons of Ohio View the World, and I'm extremely excited for every new episode to become available. Thanks to my mom, who was a Ohio history teacher. I've had a lifelong passion for the history of our great state, um, and I appreciate finding a podcast that expands my knowledge of that topic. I highly recommend Ohio View the World. Thank you again, Catherine Harrison, a uh, big fan of the show, and we always appreciate it. Get on there, rate, and review us. Uh, it really does help us. Email us, uh, another great way to reach the show, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. And if you've got questions about the show, if you want to buy a T-shirt, if you've got show ideas, uh, we can reach out to us there or on our Facebook page as well. And follow us on Twitter at ohiovtheworld. Our new season, like I said earlier, is going to be Season 5, The Presidents. And looks like that will be starting on Memorial Day of 2020. 
um, or around Memorial Day. So we look forward to, to doing all the research here during the winter. Um, and we've got so much uh, exciting, exciting stuff to bring you for that. As it's an election year, 2020 is finally here and November will be here before we know it. Our next episode, episode 11, will be uh, Ohio versus Water. We'll talk about the career of Mark Hanna, the most powerful man in politics at the turn of the century, and the uh, a senator here from Ohio. We'll talk about his life and his death, and how in his death it really helped revolutionize uh, water treatment that saved thousands and millions of lives in this country um, following his death based on basically getting poisoned from water here in Columbus, Ohio. So we'll tell the story of Mark Hanna's life, and we'll tell the story of the importance of his death. Uh, and that'll be episode 11, Ohio versus Water, a story we've really been, been looking forward to talking about. Thanks again to our guest, Jennifer Weber. Thank you guys for joining us. It's a new year. we got two episodes left, uh, and then we'll take a break here for just a couple of months so we can bring you season five. Thanks for listening. Hope to talk to you soon. Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.